And that's why after showing this, I almost feel like I shouldn't have to preach today. <laughs> but we're going to take a little bit deeper dive into this whole section and kind of pick some of this stuff apart. Uh, the old series, I, I'm calling it uh, Strong Faith for Confusing Times. And maybe some of you looked at that, watched that video and thought to yourself, boy, does it sure sound like today in a whole variety of ways. And today's message is, you know, what do you do when God just plain simple doesn't make sense? Now, I've been fortunate enough that Anthony has some uh, Savior silhouettes. I think he's got one that's going to be up on the screen here. And this is kind of the base text for today. And you can see it up there. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abound. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked him and the righteous so that justice is perverted. I look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed for I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. I'm going to boil that down to uh, Habakkuk just saying, why? Why? You know, when you look at the questions of life and death, uh, good and evil, when you consider the uh, problems of, of a death sentence generation, I think even the most fervent believer uh, starts asking questions like, why? Or why me? Or why us? Or why now? Or uh, why this? It's a big question. Why? And this question kind of has rung across centuries all the way from the days of uh, Scripture all the way up to today. And I would suggest that all of us ask those kinds of questions either sooner or later. And if you haven't asked these questions, you probably will. See, it's a question that often doesn't give us a very easy answer. Uh, Indeed, the godliest believers that you read about in Scripture, the godly believers that you probably know today have wondered exactly what on earth is God up to if he's up to anything. And, you know, I think about Job, who's considered to be one of the great people in the whole Bible. You know, and if Job never got a complete answer from God, uh, how can I expect an answer from God? And, and as I read through the Bible, I don't think there's one single answer to that question. We get one kind of answer when we read the story of Genesis. Uh, We get another kind of answer in Job, and still another answer as you read through the Psalms. And then Ecclesiastes takes even another approach. And then when you get to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, well, it presents us with Jesus, whose coming changes everything that we think about. And finally, Revelation comes along and kind of slams the book shut and says, "Ah, the Lord's going to win and evil doesn't. Now, I'm not suggesting that there's really no real answer in Scripture. I'm not suggesting that these perspectives contradict each other at all. It's just that the problems of human suffering is so vast that we need so many different ways of responding or thinking about it. And I think that's where this little tiny book of Habakkuk comes in. So in this series, we're going to kind of dive deep into the the verses here. Uh, A little book written just before the whole world kind of caved in Uh, for the people of Judah. And as I was going through my notes again the other day, I thought, I wonder, could it possibly be that this would be a good book for us to study before what we know as America suddenly caves in? Wow. Perhaps so. Now, if you don't know where Habakkuk is, you you can always look at the first book of indexes in the front of your Bible. 
Uh, but you look in the minor prophets and you say, hey, doc, that's not helping me. Well, the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and there you're going to find Habakkuk tucked nice and neatly between two other books you're really familiar with, Nahum and Zephaniah. You all read those, right? Uh, these are two other books that we hardly ever read. I'm just going to back up a second here. There are 17, 17 so-called uh, prophetic books in the Old Testament. They're divided between what they call the major prophets, and there are five of them, like Isaiah and Jeremiah, for example. And then you've got the minor prophets, another 12 of those. Now, they're not called major and minor because of their importance, but rather about their size. And in fact, I grabbed a bunch of my Bibles the other day, and I just kind of wonder how much space does it actually occupy. And in the, in the Bible I use when I teach down in prison, uh, I, I discovered... Uh, that uh, it covers very little territory. In fact, uh, the five major prophets took up 191 pages in my Bible, while the 12 minor prophets, 61 pages. So you're not talking about a whole lot. We're talking about some pretty short books. You could go home today and read all of Habakkuk probably in 20 minutes or less. Now, Habakkuk contains 56 verses, not very many, just three little chapters. And even though he's a minor prophet, there's nothing minor about the message here. He's writing about something that I think all of us think about eventually. And unlike the prophetic books, it records a dialogue between one man and God. Uh, Whereas Isaiah has uh, a message from God, Habakkuk is is recording a conversation with God. So if you've ever felt like you have some questions for God, like, hey, God, what's up? What's, what gives? What's going on today? I would say this is the book for you. That one commentator uh, that I looked at said that uh, Habakkuk is a man with a question mark for a brain. And if that's the kind of person you are who always has questions, um, I know people like that. I get pestered by them all the time. Hey, Doc, what do you think about this? What do you think about this? What is this? I was reading this the other day. What do you think about this? I don't know. I haven't thought about it yet. Give me some chance to think about it. But but a little bit of background. Uh, You've got a lot of it already in the little video. But after the good King Josiah, and Josiah was really a great king. When he died uh, in 609 B.C., uh, the nation of Israel just kind of, went over the cliff right back to where they'd been. It turned out to be kind of a cesspool, it's going to sound somewhat familiar, of corruption, immorality, idolatry that plagued many nations. And at this time, the people of this country seemed kind of like hell-bent, like a bunch of lemmings, to run to the cliff and just dive in and be over with. Instead of edging toward the cliff, uh, just edging to it, they decided to just run as fast as they could over the cliff. It was almost as if the nation of Israel had a death wish and had no use for God at all. And I step back and I look at some news reports today and I kind of wonder if we are not doing some of the same things. But enter stage right a man by the name of Habakkuk. And I was telling Jeff before the service today, I'm probably going to mention it anyway, but I had to go back and look at the... Uh, the Hebrew for that, and it means an embracer or a wrestler, because literally in three chapters, what Habakkuk does is he engages God in a wrestling match. Now, we don't know much about him. A lot of commentators say he was about 30 years old, but we don't know for sure. 
Uh, we know he was a contemporary of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, and probably about 10 to 15 years older than another one who's going to come around the bend by the name of Daniel. But what he saw from his position was the terrible moral decline of his country. He was looking at Judah, saw this is going to hell in a handbasket, and he got fed up and he said, come on, God, do something, do something about it. And in his mind, he no doubt thought that God could raise up another good king like Josiah and he would lead the people back in a good direction. But little did he know that God's answer was going to come by the way of a group of people called the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. And as I considered the situation behind this book, I was kind of reminded of some famous words of Billy Graham. And I think Billy Graham said this probably, I don't know, 60 years ago, uh, when he was a very young preacher. He said, if God doesn't judge America, he needs to go back and apologize to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he wrestled with that one for a while. See, if those were tr- words were true, let's say, 60 years ago, how much truer could they be today? I mean, Habakkuk lived in com- confusing times, but so do we. Uh, That's why we need to kind of sit and soak with Habakkuk for a while so we can find a faith strong enough for our own confusing times. Now, Habakkuk writes out this argument in three chapters. In chapter one, I call it faith tested. Uh, Chapter two is faith taught. And finally, in chapter three, it's faith triumphant. If you want to look at his personal journey, he kind of goes from uh, argument to answer uh, to acceptance And what he's doing in each chapter is asking, waiting, and then praying. Now, along the way, Habakkuk experiences a total change in how he feels. He goes from fear to faith, from burden to blessing, to perplexity to praise, to uh, from confusion to confidence, to worrying to worship. In fact, one comment, another commentator I read, uh, studying for this series, was he said Habakkuk. begins with a question mark and ends with a exclamation point. And in many ways, this is a very modern book, even though it's hundreds of years old, because uh, it raises some of the same questions that you and I wrestle with today. Now, let me give you an example. About a month or two ago, I got a, a, a JPEL uh, note from one of the inmates at Angola Prison, as I regularly do. And he described to me his current situation in prison. And then he ends up by saying, Doc, why is God so silent? Why doesn't he act? Where is Jesus when I need him? How would you respond to that letter? That's a tough question to answer. I could have just said, read Habakkuk. (laughs) That had been a simple way out. It took me a little longer to do that. I think we've all been there. Even if we, we wouldn't put it exactly that way, we come up with a, up, up against a problem for which there seems to be no human solution, we tend to kind of look up to heaven and say, come on, Lord, why don't you do something about this? Uh, you know, why don't you open up the heavens and throw down lightning or thunder or something? So as this book opens up, Habakkuk, is confused and he's agitated and there are three different issues that really bug the heck out of him. Here's issue number one. It's called unanswered prayer. And you see his prayer there. How long, Lord, must I call for help 
but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Now, think for a moment what's going on in our world today. We've got warfare, Ukraine, Soviet Union, stuff like that. We've got murder taking place. We've got government corruption. You know, pick your daily corruption, whichever one you want. Uh, sexual perversion. We don't know whether they're male or female or God only knows what's in between or outside of those boundaries. we got people who just walk into stores like uh, Walmart and places like that and just help themselves and walk right out. They just kind of open looting. Uh, you've got people who are robbing people. But guess what? This stuff was happening also in Habakkuk's day. And as he surveys everything he sees going on, he just says, how can you let this go on? Now, sooner or later, I'm going to suggest to you that all of us wonder about God's seeming activity, if not in our world, sometimes just in our own lives. I mean, where is God when we need him? Uh, how, can, how can God just avoid me? Let me give you a couple of examples. I, I don't know if this applies to you. Uh, I think it applied, it applied to us in the past, but sometimes parents pray for prodigals that seem to have gotten off the track a little ways. But you can pray for them, and sometimes, guess what? They stay a prodigal. A wife can pray for her husband, who leaves her after 20 years of marriage, when the marriage ends in divorce. Or a husband prays for his wife who has cancer, and none of the treatments seem to work. She's anointed with oil, prayed over by the elders, by the pastor in the church, but she dies five months later. A young man who prays for deliverance from pornography, uh, but the struggle never seems to end, and the more he prays, the worse the temptation becomes. And so sometimes we are like David, the psalmist, I think this is Psalm 10, where he says, Why, O Lord, do you stand so far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble. Here's the issue number two. Uncontrolled perversity. Again, verses three and four. Why do you make me look at injustice? Well, I could tell you, turn off your television. <laughs> but why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrongdoing? Destruction, violence are before me. There's strife, conflict, and abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed. And justice never prevails. Wicked men hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. And, man, if you don't see that in our world today. See, when lawlessness prevails, no one, absolutely no one is safe, not even in Hollister or Branson, Missouri. I mean, just, I'm going to give you two examples from headlines I just pulled out in the last couple of months. The 4th of July weekend in Chicago, 82 people shot, 14 killed. But, you know, that's not just Chicago. That could be Kansas City, that could be Springfield, Missouri, that could be anywhere. A couple of months back in New York, two police officers, a rabbi, a nurse, a nanny, and a Boy Scout leader were among 70 men and one woman arrested on charges of trading child pornography in what federal officials say is one of the largest ever roundups in New York. Uncontrolled perversity. Here's his third issue he had, which is an unexpected answer. Look at the nations and watch. Here's God speaking now. And be utterly amazed for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. And at this point, you can almost say Habakkuk said, yay, God. And then God says, oh, by the way, the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to send Babylon in. I'm raising up the Babylonians. 
that ruthless and impetuous people who sweep across the whole earth. See, taken by itself, those words might lead Habakkuk to think God is, the initial words is that maybe he hears those first things and he thinks, well, God's going to send some sort of a mighty spiritual revival uh, to get the nation rid of um, idolatry and bring them back to God. Now, I know a lot of pastors who actually use verse 5 when they preach about revival. Now, while I certainly think we ought to pray for revival, it would be good for us to pray for revival in our land, that's not what this is all about. See, God is going to send something, but God's not sending a revival. Because in verse 6, he said, I'm going to raise up these Babylonians, these Chaldeans. Sure, this was Jeff before the service, too. The, the Hebrew for that are clod breakers. These guys are just going to plow the ground under. And, uh, and they're going to sweep across the known world. So nothing God could have, could have said surprised Habakkuk more than what he says here. He, I mean, Habakkuk knew about the Babylonians. They were the most hated, the most feared nation on the face of the earth. And under Nebuchadnezzar, uh, their armies just plundered every nation around them. Uh, nobody could stand up against them. Nobody could defeat them. They were cruel. They were vicious. Uh, if they wanted a city, they took it. If they wanted a province, they took it. If they wanted a nation, they just rolled in and took over that nation. Now, it's kind of hard for us to fully understand how the Jews felt about these Babylonians. I mean, they, they came with a cruelty that really hadn't been heard about before. Uh, if a conquered city, for example, uh, was not considered, uh, ins- uh, was considered insufficiently servile, they would put up a whole pile of skulls in the plaza as a warning not to rebel against them. And they poked out the eyes of the kings that they conquered. And when they took people into captivity, they often put these giant fish hooks through their cheeks and drugged them away. These were evil, wicked, bad, and nasty folks. But if you read a little bit further, and I don't have these verses on the screen, but if you had Scripture open, you look at God describes them. Verse 6, he said, they're ruthless and impetuous. They are feared and dreaded. They are a law to themselves. Then he goes on and says, They're swift as leopards, ravenous as wolves. They swoop on their prey like eagles dropping from the sky. They gather prisoners like sand. They mock kings. They laugh at fortified cities. They never stop. And then finally God comes to his final indictment of the Babylonians in verse 11. And he said, And their strength is their God. It's not God is their God. Their strength is their God. See, the point is, again, these are evil, wicked, bad and nasty folks. And God knows how bad they are. So it's not like he's going to raise up the little sisters of the poor or the Boy Scouts to fight against them. When, he, when God decides to judge Judah, he picks the meanest nation on the face of the earth to do the job. And nothing like that made sense to Habakkuk. And I suggest to you if that it happened in our time today, we would be just as surprised. I mean, he couldn't believe what was going on. Now, this raises a question. What if God allows, still allows this? What if God would still allow this for a purpose? I mean, what if this has to happen again? Now, very often in the Bible, things had to get worse before they ever got better. I don't want to paint a bad picture of America, but what if we reached that point in our own country today? 
And as I read and I listen, uh, many people say we need a revival in America. And I would say, yeah, but let's be careful about what we're going to try to revive here. Uh, I hear some people say we're on the brink of a, a great movement back to God, and I would certainly hope that's true. But I, I'm still struggling to find answer to why, why have we as a nation turned away from the truth to begin with? Why have we allowed moral standards to be corrupted in our, in our cities, in our schools, in our nation? And I think the answer is pretty clear. This may sound pretty harsh, but I think as a nation, we don't need God. I think that's the feeling among many people. God, we don't need him. Do you realize that most churches during COVID lost anywhere from about 30 to 50% of their worshiping congregations? They, and they, they've never come back. They were there. COVID comes. Now they're not there anymore. Where are these people? Kind of disappeared. See, we think we're doing okay without God, which doesn't make a whole lot of sense. How many of you here remember 9-11? Okay, most of you do. I remember that. I was having a meeting at Colonial Ice Cream with my group of guys, Bob, Bob, and Bob. <laughs> we were working on some building stuff when that was announced, and the guy actually brought a television out and set it on an ice cream cooler to watch. Do you remember the Sunday after 9-11? Remember that? I do. I was pastoring at Lord of Life outside of Chicago. Churches were packed all of a sudden. Millions of people responded to the terrorist attacks by coming to a house of worship. Attendance went like this, but within months it went back down to this. Returned to life more or less as normal. And we said to ourselves, this will never, ever happen again. But we were wrong. And I think what happened after 9-11 was this. We turned toward God, but we did not turn to God. And I want to suggest there's a big difference between turning toward God and turning to God in times of trouble. See, we turned in his direction, but we did not repent of our national sins. Turning toward God is good, but only turning to God can help as a nation. Now, everybody here this morning, everybody who will hear this message, whether it's on our website or it's on my message website, uh, I suggest it's in one of three different places. You're either in confusing times yourself, or maybe you're coming out of some confusing times, or maybe you're about ready to go into confusing times, but you don't know it yet. That's why I would hope that you would take this series on Habakkuk and kind of stick it in your hip pocket because it's going to come in handy. Keep it close so that you can get to it when you need it. You don't need it today. You might need it tomorrow. You might need it next week. Now I'm going to wrap this up with just three important insights, something for us to kind of take home and consider today. Here's insight number one. We see only part of the picture. When it comes to understanding what God is actually doing in our world today, we're kind of like ants crawling across the Rembrandt. Maybe I should say an ant crawling across the Savior silhouette, to put it in our perspective today. We crawl across the spot that is dark brown, and we think all of life is dark brown. But as we keep crawling along, 
uh, never realizing what was happening, we suddenly hit the green and we think, oh man, and now it's all green and then all of a sudden it turns dark blue and then we keep crawling along and then it's, it's a splash of yellow and then another streak of red and, and maybe another patch of brown and on the journey from one color to the other, we don't realize what's happening is that God is painting a masterpiece using all of the colors of the palette. And one day we're going to discover that every color had its place. It had its reason. Nothing was wasted or out of place. So just as there is a time and a season for everything, there's also a color for every stage of life that we've been through. When the painting is finished, we're going to discover that we were part of the masterpiece from the very beginning, that God was just painting a masterpiece for us to see. Here's a second insight. God is not limited to what we think he ought to do. We continually make the mistake of thinking that our plans and God's plans are the same plans. I have the opportunity to speak at something called the Immersion Excursion in October down in Hot Springs, Arkansas. If you don't know anything about it, there's a church down there called Lake Point. It's a Lutheran church, by the way. They baptize more people every year than any other Lutheran church in America. They do some amazing things down there. And uh, uh, we sometimes think, well, we go down there and do exactly what they do, and it'll all be the same for us. Well, no, uh, God's plans has his own plans for different groups of people, and we just need to understand that. Now, some wise person a long time ago told me, write your plans in pencil and then give God the eraser. Uh, You know, man proposes, God disposes many different times. There's another way of saying, and this comes from Psalm 115, verse 3. And he says, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Interesting verse. I mean, if your God always does what you want, friends... He's probably not the God of the Bible. I mean, it's God is not going to be any man's servant. Here's the third insight. I think we all need a bigger God. Habakkuk got his mind messed up because he thought he knew what God should do. Now, in chapter 1, kind of wrapping this part up, it shows that Habakkuk was wrong twice. First of all, when he thought God was ignoring Judah's sin... And second, when he couldn't believe God would use the Babylonians to judge his people. So my message today is, is this, and it's for myself and prayerfully for you too. We need a God who is bigger than our ideas. We've only been around since the end of February. What were your ideas about this place to begin with? Whatever ideas we had, God has a much bigger plan. It's a God who's going to continually surprise us every step along the way. So a question maybe to leave you with today is how big is your God? How big is your God? Because you're going to need a pretty big God if tough times come. Let's pray. Father, as we go through this story of a man who wrestled with you, we're glad... You included it in your book so that we would know how honest we can be with you. Thank you that you listen to us in our complaints and you don't turn us away. 
Open your word to us so that our vision of who you are might grow. We need a big God, and we've got one. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.